I think it's really important to communicate that the blockchain itself, the beacon chain, continued to add transactions. Ethereum did not go down. It was um, also an example where it highlights the need for contingency planning and client validator uh, diversity. Hello, and welcome to The Crypto Brief, a podcast from the Fidelity Center for Applied Technology. Every week, we get together to discuss current events and trends in blockchain technology, tokenization, DeFi, NFTs, mining, and related aspects of the crypto ecosystem. I'm your co-host, Ryan Stubbe, Director of Bitcoin Mining, and I'm joined by Jason Ward, Head of the Blockchain Incubator, Parth Gargava, Product Architect within Fidelity Labs, and Jack Newrider, Research Analyst with Fidelity Digital Assets. Before we begin, just a friendly reminder that this discussion is for educational purposes only and should not be viewed as investment advice or a recommendation for any security or asset. The views expressed are those of the co-hosts and not necessarily those of Fidelity Investments or its affiliates. As we all know, digital assets are speculative and highly volatile and are only for those investors with a high risk tolerance. So let's dive into what's been happening recently. Hello, hello. Hey guys, happy Monday. How are you? Pretty good. How about you? Can't complain. Jack, what's going on in your world? You know, just just celebrating Mother's Day. Um, Had a nice weekend and looking forward to Memorial Day weekend around the corner, right? I can't believe we're already halfway through May. Time is just flying by. We say that all the time because it's just true. So we just got to live in the moment. You know, we think about what's going on outside of work. You know, the flowers are blooming, the birds are singing, there's all types of life. So uh, I hope you guys are getting outside a little bit more. Trying to, trying to. Although if you walk away from uh, the space for more than five to 10 minutes, you're like behind by what feels like an eternity. So it's, it's, it's sometimes hard to unplug, that's for sure. <laughs> that's so true. All right, so let's just jump right in. We don't have Parth today, and he's going to be out on vacation getting some much-deserved R&R. But for today, um, we have a couple of things that we wanted to talk about. The big story that everyone has been really focused on is an issue related to finality that we have we saw late last week on Ethereum in two different instances. So talk a little bit about kind of what happened and what we know and what we don't know, as well as you know what it really means longer term for Ethereum. And then also an interesting announcement last week out of uh, Digital Asset related to them launching a new enterprise DLT network. We'll talk a little bit about that as well. Um, So I think we can just jump right in. Jason, do you want to just maybe give us a high level overview of the events of last week with Ethereum? Sure. So back on May 11th and May 12th, there were a couple of instances where the Ethereum blockchain was adding transactions but having some difficulty or delay in finalizing those transactions. So you know, people were questioning what's causing the delay, uh, what's going on. I think a lot of that is still under investigation. But what I think makes sense is just defining what finality is. So if you go out to the uh, Ethereum Foundation site, ask the question, what is finality? Finality refers to the guarantee that a block can't be altered or removed from the blockchain without burning at least 33% of the total staked ETH. So basically, um, these transactions, while they were pending finality, they could have been subject to uh, being altered or even removed from the chain. And there's no evidence to suggest that that happened. But when you think about it, there's a type of a, a, a network attack 
which would be to prevent the attestation of these transactions, meaning agreeing, all validator nodes agreeing that these transactions are in fact uh, valid and on the chain, uh, you need to have 66% or two-thirds of all staked ETH, meaning all validator nodes on the beacon chain, um, attesting to the proof of those transactions. So until that happens, you're at risk for not being finalized. So in one instance, the delay uh, in finalization was about 25 minutes. And then the second instance, it was a little bit over an hour. So there's a lot of speculation about what might be causing the delay in the attestations. Uh, we saw over the weekend that a couple of different uh, software clients, um, Prism Labs and one operated by Teku, released some patches to uh, remediate against this type of delay. But in, in simple terms, you know, I'm always big on analogies. When these clients, it seems that when these clients were trying to attest to the transactions, because there was a backup of congestion, they couldn't attest to the next block because they hadn't already attested to the prior block. So until that two thirds threshold was met, these were pending. So it was a little bit of a traffic jam. Then once you get to the two thirds attestations and these other validator clients catch up, they start processing uh, the attestations in a normal time frame, and then you're back to business as usual. But I think it's really important to communicate that the blockchain itself, the beacon chain, continued to add transactions. Ethereum did not go down. It was um, also an example where it highlights the need for contingency planning and client validator uh, diversity. So basically, back to the network uh, traffic analogy, you got to have lots of uh, on and off ramps in order to make sure that you can adjust the traffic accordingly. Yeah. So maybe let's just talk a bit about, you know, client diversity, because I think that's probably one of the biggest takeaways here. Um, Jack, I know you shared, you know, before we jumped on some, some data around kind of the different types of clients, as well as kind of the current distribution. You want to just maybe provide, you know, a little bit of an overview on that. Yeah. So, so like Jason had mentioned, uh, there was basically two clients that were seen as being having issues for the most part um, that were causing some of these failures. And so in order to reach finality, like Jason was, was mentioning, knowing that your transaction cannot be reorged and reverted or changed back, uh, you need two thirds of, of consensus validators to agree um, and, and finalize those transactions. And what was happening was basically at least two of these consensus clients that make up uh, a combined over 50% uh, of clients on uh, Ethereum, like Ethereum validators themselves, weren't functioning properly. And so there's four or five consensus clients. Lighthouse, which was not affected, is the largest at 38% market share of consensus clients. Prism, 37, 38%, uh, which, which did have issues. And then Teku, the other big one, uh, around 17%. And so if you add the 17 and the 37, 38% of Prism, um, Teku and Prism combined make up more than 50% of client market share. You need two thirds of validators functioning properly to help finalize uh, each epoch. Um, and, and you weren't getting that. And so everybody's sort of looking like Jason was mentioning and saying, we need to push for more client diversity. Because if you need two thirds in order to reach consensus, 
then if any single client makes up more than one third, then you're necessarily vulnerable to the fact that if there are bugs or issues with one single client that makes up more than a third, you won't be reaching finality on certain blocks. Like Jason mentioned, this time around, there were two waves, one on, on May 11th for three epochs and, and one on, on May 12th on a Friday that was eight epochs. Eventually, you did get um, finality reached. And since then, patches have been released for Prism and Teku. Um, so hopefully for, for the time being, this has been subdued. But there's still like not a ton of clarity here. Um, and just moving forward, I think there'll be a push uh, for more client diversity coming out of this. Yeah, and I think it's certainly kind of an interesting dynamic as well, because these these different clients are not necessarily related to or developed by Ethereum Foundation, right, which oversees the majority of kind of the the fundamentals of, of Ethereum. And so it is, you know, it will be interesting to watch kind of how client diversity evolves over time. Obviously, we've had a lot of recent milestones with Ethereum, and this is a well-known issue, right? Or, or, or maybe not issue, but concern that, you know, you would have centralization one way or another with how people are operating their validator nodes and kind of some of the systemic risks that come along with it. Another, I, I think, fairly frequently cited risk is the fact that many people are running their nodes in a cloud environment. And what that equates to is you have a lot of nodes running on effectively the same infrastructure. And if there's an issue with that infrastructure, that also could present an issue to the at least the consensus and execution layers of the network. Yeah, Ryan, the one thing I would add here is it's maybe important to look at Bitcoin in the context of client diversity. And Bitcoin has almost no diversity in its clients, but some, and I, I think most, would argue that it doesn't need it because Bitcoin doesn't really make upgrades all that often. It's once every five years, they tend to be like non-controversial. Now we're finding out like Taproot and some of these upgrades, when you combine them, you end up creating uh, different things that are able to happen that you didn't think about uh, intentionally before, like ordinals that we've been talking about that, that end up happening. Um, but regardless, almost everyone runs Bitcoin Core for their node, but also the structure of Bitcoin is also different as well. Right? You, you have a, a separation of sort of governance mechanisms or a balance of powers where there's node operators that tend to be running Bitcoin Core. And then there's the miners that are actually doing the proof of work you know, consensus algorithm. Right? Those two things are, for the most part, separate. Of course, miners run nodes, but there are independent node operators. You don't really have that for Ethereum. Right now, you've sort of combined the two functions. There aren't many people that run their own nodes on Ethereum that aren't also validating transactions as part of the proof of stake mechanism. And remember, Ethereum makes upgrades and hard forks all the time. We're in the double digits of hard forks on Ethereum. It's not a good or bad thing. It's just, it's structurally different. That's why Ethereum's more like a technology platform, kind of less like this trusted money, right? You put the two in, in different buckets. They have different designs, but therefore, there's an importance of this client diversity of the software that's being run to be diversified because you could run into bugs that lead to consensus failure, right? And at least this time around on Ethereum, it wasn't like fatal. You could still transact on the network. And if you were just an average user, you probably didn't even know that it was happening because the, the issues were cleared up uh, by the time they, they were even spurring in the, in the moment. Everybody saw them in real time and then they sort of resolved themselves after uh, an hour or less in, in both cases. Yeah, Jack, I, I think that's right. But when you think about diversity of clients, we're talking here about the validator clients that are attesting to the blocks in the network. But you also have execution clients and consensus clients. So it's another way that it differs from, from Bitcoin. But 
one of the things that I, I was digging into is um, what are some of the challenges when you have this increased diversity, not of clients, but distribution of the network? So you have geographic diversity, you have software diversity, but what you have is common compute. And when you're trying to ensure that you can maintain the compute at a pace that is expected, so the transactions are added and finalized, there are some trade-offs in the level of distributed compute that you can support. And I, I do wonder over time like how we will continue to see adjustments to that striking of the balance between distribution and pace. So I spent a lot of time out on the uh, Ethereum Foundation website trying to learn more about the approach. But um, I think like many things, I don't want to say it's a wait and see. It's a monitor and understand type of uh, a game for us. Yeah. And I, you know, I think, Jason, to your point, there's a myriad of things that could have potentially happened as a result of this, but didn't. And so I think all things considered how this ultimately worked itself out, it could have been worse, right? And it wasn't. And I think it's a pretty valuable learning for the community, both around just a development standpoint, as we think about these clients, but also from a diversification standpoint. Again, this is this is not a new concern or issue. And so I think this is ultimately what some of those concerns were playing out in real time, right? And so I think it's, if anything else, just a reminder that this is something that people should take seriously and there does need to be greater diversification across different clients. Yeah, to the degree of uh, taking client diversity seriously for Ethereum, especially going back to the fact that Ethereum makes sort of a constant series of upgrades. We know there's another one planned for before the end of this year. We just had one uh, back in April, a month ago. If you go back in Bitcoin's history, like back to 2018, there was a disclosed bug to, you know, told to the, the group of Bitcoin core developers. They had to kind of sweep it under the rug and, and keep it quiet until they were able to tell everybody after the fact, after uh, everyone's clients and notes you know, were updated in, in Bitcoin core, that there was a infinite mint bug, essentially, in, in Bitcoin's code that had been missed. And then ultimately, because everyone's running Bitcoin core, if it was exploited at the time, that would have dramatically changed the history of Bitcoin. And of course, again, everyone's still running Bitcoin Core, and it's still really like basically run on, on one software client, um, but it's a very simple protocol comparative to Ethereum. And so just to think for, for Ethereum's sake, being far more complex, like the, the need to diversify cl across clients um, in order to hopefully avoid those types of bugs becoming problematic. Again, here, we haven't gotten a ton of clarity in terms of what the real issue was here, right? Jason, I think you sort of said a lot of congestion that was causing certain issues for some of these clients, but there's not a lot of clarity in terms of what was happening, not saying that there was something bigger at play here. Uh, but again, those types of things can happen. This is just code and everything from Bitcoin all the way down the list is susceptible to bugs or exploits or issues. Yeah. I'm always surprised by, but I guess I shouldn't be, is, is how quickly these issues get triaged in, in the public arena, right? which I, I guess in crypto is really just Twitter. Um, you know, I mean, you could basically follow along in real time as, as the devs are kind of working through these different issues. And this is one example of that, but there's certainly been others recently. And I think it, it just kind of speaks to kind of how decentralized networks you know, both are run, governed, and and how they kind of heal when there's issues. And so I think that that is just something that, you know, has always been something that I enjoy 
um, I enjoy seeing when these things happen, if there is a silver lining. It is good that you call it out, right? Because it's community-driven, community-maintained. There may be some uh, some players who are a little bit more sophisticated, but ultimately it is truly composed of people who've committed their time, their intellect, and their energy to maintaining these networks. Yeah, yeah. Maybe um, this is probably a good opportunity for us to shift gears a bit and talk about something um, slightly different. <laughs> um, and that is um, an enterprise blockchain or an enterprise DLT, um, which, you know, we, we have, we've done a special episode on this before. Um, but we saw a, f- a fairly, um, you know, fairly significant announcement, I would say, out of Digital Asset. Digital Asset's been been around for, for a while in the space, I think since 2014, I believe, working on enterprise blockchain or distributed ledger applications and tools for enterprises. They've had a few notable relationships over the years, including um, with ASX, working with them on replatforming their chess system. That project ultimately didn't move forward, but nonetheless, I would say a fairly well-established player, as well as Hyperledger and R3 with their Corda. And effectively, last week, they announced that they are launching a new network called the Canton Network, which is really targeted at addressing some of the, the issues that institutions may face when dealing with public blockchains, particularly around privacy, permissioning, controls, certainly governance, and and really seeking to bring together a consortia of companies to start building applications on top of this new network using their DAML language. I think one of the things that was was notable to me um, as part of this announcement, but uh, certainly would like to get your your guys' thoughts, was just the number of companies that are um, apparently working with them on this. Um, you know, it, it, it was pretty, a list of pretty big, you know, heavy hitters in the, in the space of, of banking and, and finance. Of course, it includes ASX, BNP Paribas, Broadridge, Paxos, S&P Global, the Digital Dollar Project, Goldman Sachs, Microsoft. So a lot of big companies, right? Um, and I think this is interesting because Jason, you and I have talked a lot about this. When you kind of lose the networked effect of public permissionless blockchains, well, you have to kind of create a network effect um, with these permission systems. And, and that can ultimately probably be the, the biggest challenge associated with getting adoption versus leveraging open source public rails. Yeah, it's, it's a really good point. And then you have to really look at beyond the network, what is the actual technology? Right. So we know that this isn't a, a traditional blockchain. It's a distributed ledger technology. And when you, I, I did some reading on this. I'm far from an expert on this. So I want to caveat that. But it's being communicated that um, Canton is an interoperability protocol that utilizes the digital asset markup language for, um, for smart contract writing. But the protocol is, is, to power a permissioned and private, uh, privacy-enabled um, communication path. And when I say communication path, I, I mean it seems that this technology is viewed as being able to orchestrate workflows across a number of disjointed applications or other networks. So um, Luke, looking at an, an article that was published they're describing it as decentralized infrastructure that connects independent applications built with DAML smart contracts. So when I think about independent applications, I think about traditional middle back office type of operations using uh, this type of communication channel or interoperability protocol to pass data back and forth and manage state of transactions. That's just 
uh, early early interpretation. Yeah, yeah. I think the the interoperability pieces is, is quite important, right? When we think about you know these you know DLT based applications, just given kind of the need for standardization for lack of a better term, between them, right, to, in order to, to kind of achieve that level of interoperability. And I think the privacy piece is interesting as well. Obviously, with certain financial services applications, you may be two individual institutions transacting across the DLT and not necessarily want the others helping maintain the network or participating in the network to see the details of those those transactions. And so I think that that piece is interesting as well. Although, again, I'm, I'm a little light on the details in terms of how they're achieving privacy. Obviously, in the public domain, um, there's privacy-oriented chains. And even in you know the, the Layer 2 space, there are certain Layer 2s that prioritize privacy. And, and there's, I think, a, a variety of different ways that you can go about kind of implementing that. But certainly, when we think about kind of the, the enterprise um, adoption and use, um, that is something that is important. But I would say, Equally important is the ability to do, you know, audits and reconciliation, and so it's a it's a bit of a a bit of a trade off, and and I think you kind of have to design for that um, to be able to support your obligations on both of those different design vectors. Haven't we heard these types of announcements before? And I just feel like they've always been, and not meaning nothing to any of these individual companies, they've always sort of been a headline, but then you never kind of hear anything about it as you move forward. Right. Like at some point, then it's like, okay, blockchain goes out out of style. And then two years from now, you'll ask where that project went and you'll get no answers kind of. But I just feel like I heard a lot of the enterprise blockchain, DLT. I don't know. I've, I've never really seen it going. It's been a rough go for, you know, enterprise projects in general. Right. And, and I think you, you do make a good point that, you know, we we've seen many struggle to get traction or, or deliver the value that I think they were intended to deliver because of some of the, you know, like very practical operational kind of implementation details. Do you guys think I have the wrong framework when I look at the blockchain space, right? And you have public blockchains and like distributed ledger technology, if we want to break it down that way of private permissioned blockchains. And it's very similar to internet intranet of open source over a long enough time period just fundamentally makes more sense. Anyone can opt into it, anyone can see it versus some of these, uh, whatever, federated blockchains that are distributed ledger technology. Yeah, so Jack, I can tell you from experience that I, I've, I've had similar thoughts. Um, a lot of times there's been a pendulum that swung back and forth over the years. It's Bitcoin, not blockchain, it's blockchain, not Bitcoin. What we're seeing is a lot of new discussions that are reviving thoughts of prior discussions about it's the technology, not the asset. And when you look at a lot of these traditional financial services players, some may not be willing to engage with the public blockchains as of yet for a variety of reasons. So they oftentimes look to say, can this technology, this distributed ledger technology, address some pain point that I have? Sometimes I think... The challenge, as Ryan pointed out, is getting the network of people who are committed to work on something. Um, sometimes the challenge is about agreeing on the technology once you have a, a minimum viable network of folks that want to working together. When I look at this type of potential, 
when I see statements that it's, it's going to connect independent applications, I think about how do you maintain the integrations with these off DLT applications? You might have more than one shop that runs the same uh, XYZ application, but different instances or they've integrated in a different way. So it's not even like saying that just because you have uh, system A and two parties have system A that they overlay it with a workflow tool that it's going to be exactly easy. It's going to be these types of things end up having a lot of the um, difficulty, you know, the so-called devil in the details um, illuminated once you try to do the actual integration. So I think the question really is what problem are you trying to solve? And then the next question is, what is the best technology to solve that problem? I also think like re- regarding the, you know, the adoption, the, the group of institutions or users of enterprise blockchain or DLT is also a group that, you know, historically, you know, hasn't moved fast or hasn't been able to move fast, right, in terms of adopting new technologies for, for a variety of reasons. And so I do think like the, the adoption cycle you know, it does feel like we've been talking about this for years, but I think when you think about how quick it's taken them to adopt other technologies, that timeline, I think, tracks. Now, whether or not it materializes, you know, and we see it broad adoption, as broad adoption as other like major technologies, I think is TBD. But I think, Jason, you made a, you made a good point. Like it, it, the narrative has kind of flip-flopped over the years. But one of the, I think, interesting pieces is that it, to me, and this is my opinion, feels like it might be slightly correlated to where we're at with what, you know, the crypto markets are doing. I suspect that's because institutions are feeling like maybe it's too risk on to be doing anything on a permissionless blockchain because of the assets that are associated with those blockchains. I mean, that's that's possible, right? And is is part of it not... Um it gets talked about less and it's less like enticing because there's not uh, a directly like investable thesis for the average person. It's like operations and logistics for companies, which is very important. Of course, like fixing certain settlement mechanisms or whatever it is, use a bunch of buzzwords to describe it. But that is, it doesn't have a price that moves on the screen every single day that the average person is investing in or something like that. When was the last time you saw somebody quote the cost of recon? Yeah. <laughs> you know, unless you're in an operation, you're not going to hear that. It, it's really about data. Yeah. yeah. Which is incredible. Like it can, of course, add value, like why you're talking about it and interested by it. It could add value to these organizations, but it's just like, it's not directly like tangible and we can't like look at it every single day and monitor it. Well, it's interesting enough that it keeps coming back. Yeah. Right. And, and, and I guess maybe keeps coming back isn't fair because it's never really gone. Right. But you just hear about it less. Right. These, these companies are investing significant resources in exploring the technology. Right. At least um, and looking at kind of where the largest value use cases will will lie. And so I tend to think that there still is a recognition of potentially significant savings and or value in adopting this technology in in a variety of different ways. Right. And so I think like, again, it's too early to kind of say, you know, how this is going to play out, but we could see, you know, more institutional adoption of DLTs moving forward. Right. I think like 
it's not the types of processes that would potentially move over these, you know, maybe more decentralized rails, of course, not to the degree of any public blockchain. Those types of changes are not, you know, made overnight. And I think like, even when we think about trading and settlement, Jason, right, like, you know, I know you were involved in your operations days of, you know, moving from T plus X to T plus Y. Where are we now? T plus two? Is it T plus one? <laughs> we're T2 on our way to T1, supposedly. Yeah. But that takes time, right? I mean, how long did the T2 initiative take? Um, I, I will say there were a lot of people who were fully dedicated and committed to it, and it took a couple of years to get there. A lot of coordination. That, Like I said, that, 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 that devil is in the details of the integration. I just want to zoom back out again for a moment. In this particular scenario, we're talking about enterprise technology being used to solve enterprise challenges. But it's really about if you, you pull the onion back a little bit, there are two things that most traditional financial services companies wrestle with. And it's really around data integrity and simplifying their technology architecture. So if you can know that your data is current, it's accurate, and it's actionable, and you can integrate it in a way so that the data state is shared across a number of consumers and publishers, then you've addressed some of those drivers of that reconciliation process. Once you can do that across from one entity to another, you get more efficiency. So these players have costs and these technology efforts are investments in future cost reduction. Yeah, to, to the timeline piece, I'm just thinking of like, Think about how long it takes one single large organization to upgrade portions of its tech infrastructure and now do that with 15. Right. And and also agreeing on like a standard, right? Like to do so. That's what I'm saying. Like, I think like it's, it's just different variables to be weighed um, versus kind of the, the decentralized permissionless infrastructure. Yeah. I used to boil it down that you need five things. You need to have a minimally committed, viable ecosystem of participants. You need to have common and if not common interoperable technology you have to have standards you have to have a commitment and you have to have an economic incentive and where you start to get into some some challenge at times is agreeing to the common standards sometimes the levels of commitments vary and the economic incentives will vary based on whether you're trying to provide a platform or you're trying to cut cost so is it revenue or is it cost reduction and because you have so many players involved it becomes a challenge to manage those various interests. Is that not the case for why open source ultimately will make more sense because you just have to converge on something that everybody else is using versus trying to coordinate with everybody else when you have your own incentives? I think you'll always have differences of opinions, but that is certainly a, a part of the driver for the elegance of accepting open source technologies once you can prove that they meet your required standards. I think that's a very kind of a ideological way of ending this discussion. I think, you know, again, it it should be interesting to see how it how it plays out over the coming years. Um, and just a quick um, a quick editor's note: next week's discussion, just as a teaser, um, will be on blockchain-based gaming. Um, that's a discussion with um, Jack, myself, and Parth. All right, guys. Well, thanks so much for the discussion today. It was it was great chatting, and uh, we'll uh, we'll see you soon. Have a great rest of your week. Thanks. See you later.
Digital assets are speculative and highly volatile, can become illiquid at any time, and are only for those investors willing to risk losing some or all of their investment and who have the experience and ability to evaluate the risks and merits of an investment. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. This podcast was produced by Fidelity Center for Applied Technology, also known as FCAT. FCAT does not offer digital assets nor provide clearing or custody of such assets. It is for informational purposes only and is not intended to provide tax, legal, insurance, or investment advice and should not be construed as an offer to sell, a solicitation of an offer to buy, or a recommendation for any security or other asset by any fidelity entity or any third party. Views expressed are as of the date indicated based on the information available at the time and may change based on market or other conditions. Unless otherwise noted, the opinions provided are those of the authors and not necessarily those of Fidelity Investments or its affiliates. Fidelity does not assume any duty to update any of the information. Fidelity and any other third parties mentioned in the podcast are independent entities and not affiliated. Mentioning them does not suggest a recommendation or endorsement by Fidelity. This information is not intended for distribution to or use by any person or entity in any jurisdiction or country where such distribution or use would be contrary to local law or regulation. Persons accessing this information are required to inform themselves about and observe such restrictions. Third-party trade marks appearing herein are the property of the respective owners. All others are the property of FMR LLC. Copyright 2023 FMR LLC. All rights reserved. 1040156.